You are listening to Cursed Murphy's podcast. Our guest, Donegal-born poet, writer and educator, Anne-Marie Nicoran. Anne-Marie Nicoran's first book, Bloodroot, published by Dura Press in 2017, was shortlisted for the Shine Strong Award for Best First Collection in Ireland and for the 2018 Julie Souk Award in the US. She's the recipient of numerous literary fellowships, including a residency at the Jack Kerouac House, Orlando. In 2016, Anne-Marie was the recipient of a Next Generation Artists Award from the Arts Council of Ireland. The following year, she was appointed to the Writers in Prisons panel, co-funded by the Arts Council and the Department of Justice, Equality and Reform. She is currently writer-in-residence at National University of Ireland, Maynooth. Of her work, Dr. Sinead Kennedy of the Department of English there has written, Nikuran bears witness to the lived experiences of women, including those Irish women who for too long have been overlooked and silenced. Women like Anne Lovett, Joanne Hayes, and the many nameless disregarded women who lived lives of imprisonment within Irish institutions. The following episode, featuring Anne-Marie's most extensive interview to date, was produced with the support of Wexford Arts Department, Wexford County Council and Wexford Public Library, and was recorded in front of a live audience by Dan Comerford. Anne-Marie, you're very welcome to Cursed Murphy's podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for hosting this discussion. <laughs> How very formal. I... <laughs> <laughs> help it be formal I'm is there uh, there's it's a very interesting historical position of the poet is where you know they're ignored for most of their lives to the point of starvation and then when a president needs something to quote in his presidential address they get sort of wheeled out and um and uh, pillaged a lot about your work seems to be a critiquing of the state a rebellion against the state um, is there an element of poetry that involves revolt or not mm. wearing your suit and tie? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm really interested in what Joy said, that all poetry is a revolt against actuality. And I didn't always realise that about my own voice and about my own work, but certainly... Once I looked at my first manuscript that would become my first book, I could no longer deny that uh, there's something in the poems and there's something in me that naturally wants to push out, to push against, to speak up. And, you know, you kind of go on a journey of... um, you go on a journey of reflection and discovery when you're writing and you discover yourself through the work and my first book taught me a lot about who I was and where I've come from where my family have come from and um, what's the blood root of the title so blood root is a wild plant Uh, it doesn't grow in Ireland I came across it when I was away from Ireland away from home it's a plant that is used as a healer. Um, it has medicinal properties that can be used for healing wounds. And if used incorrectly, it can be really quite harmful. So I was interested really originally in the, in the word bloodroot. I was interested in all the O's, all the space in the word. I just made up the word myself. And then I sat with it for a few months and I you know, researched it and I thought, is that word out there in the world? And I discovered this plant. And I just, I remembered that I had connected with this wild plant when I was in part of the United States on residency. So the title is really significant for me because it speaks of wildness, it speaks of the landscape, it speaks of the potential for harm, potential for healing. And it's also a very good looking word, which is very important to me. Did you know when you were writing these poems that there would be a sort of a thematic spine to them? I mean, a lot of the poems are to do with the suppressed voices of 
women, uh, institutionalized women, women who were mother in baby homes. Um, and it was an incredibly timely book. It came out in 2017, right on the cusp of, uh, of a lot of convulsions in Irish society, inevitable convulsions. And I wonder, was this book always mapped as a sort of manifesto? It's too strong a word, but there's a very strong line running through it. No, not, not at all. Not at all. In fact, I did my MPhil in creative writing in uh, around 2010, and I really set out to write a book that would dig into the physical landscape and look at things like hair blower and ulm and... Um, the wild landscape and so I really had no idea that I was going to go on this journey into Irish history and the voices of rural Irish women and that it would lead me to sit at the graveside of Anne Lovett or that it would lead me to Carsevine Beach. I mean I just kind of ended up down that road really unself-aware and had to almost at one point in the writing put it all aside and think, do I want to continue going down this path? Because this is not what I have planned myself. And I certainly was just writing because I wanted to be writing in the aftermath of my MPhil, but I, I wasn't thinking of the political climate. I wasn't thinking there's a referendum going to come up. None of that. In fact, I think sometimes when you're making work and when you're being creative, if everything's going very well, natural synchronicities will emerge. And just after the book was published, Anne Lovett's story was, was back in the um, Irish Times again. And, um, you know, I think those synchronicities, they're, they're a sign that you're on the right path. So I had... You know, during the writing of Bloodroot, I did pause and I, I thought, do I want to continue going on with this? But I was learning so much about myself and I was learning so much about my family. And it seemed really important to go on with the book, even though it was at times a very dark process. And um, like there's a lot of fun and joy and play in writing a book, but there was a lot of excavating and... Um, looking at difficult subjects in this particular book. A friend of mine, quite recently, only half-jokingly, referred to Ireland as an open-air asylum. Um, yeah. At what point did you discover, for instance, I mean, all of us have, uh, we don't have skeletons in the cupboard, we have entire graveyards stuck in there. Uh, I wonder at what point did you discover, say, that your paternal grandmother was in a mother and baby home? Mm. And how much did... How much did that influence the poems, or did the poems come first? Or? Um, I think that uh, growing up in the family that I grew up in, I was always aware of the unsaid and the untold story, because I grew up with foster siblings. So I was in my own biological family, but had many foster siblings coming from all types of different backgrounds and staying in the family for various lengths of time and so I was around a lot of unsaid around a lot of unverbalized feeling and around a lot of secrets and so my from a very young age I think my I was attuned to all of that my ear was attuned to that and I think I began reading body language and observing um, how people acted in different scenarios and thinking about how families belong to each other and what happens when there's separation in a family. I started thinking about that at, all, at a very young age. And then at some point I became aware that um, maybe part of the reason that there was silence in our family past was because my father did not have um, any contact with his birth mother. Mm -hmm. And then you know, slowly, I mean, as kids, you're kind of unraveling stories. You, you kind of pull on a thread and realised that my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, had given birth in a mother and baby home. She had become separated from my father for, you know, over 40 years. And then suddenly the realisation at around 
age 12, 13, that we had a whole other family on the other side of the border in, in Derry and that uh, we might meet them. So you're kind of, like, I think we all put together our family stories. We, like, we unravel and we, we put together the picture. Um, kind of the two things are kind of happening at the same at the same time, slowly and over time. But it was probably a pretty unique upbringing in that most of the people I ever lived with had been separated from their parents or siblings. So you were a serial foster sister from what age? From around the age of 11. Okay. Yeah. Did, yeah. Is your father still alive? Yes, he is. Uh, Do you speak to him about, uh, about his family history? We have spoken about it. It's probably been easier for me to write about it um, than it is to have those type of conversations. I feel like, like my writing comes out of an inability sometimes to have verbal conversations and that um, it's been I've, I've been able to make sense of the situation and our family dynamic and our family constellation and a lot more by, by writing about it um, but yes yeah, so I've had family conversations where we talk about how um, that kind of past influences you know our relationships today with each other and it does influence um, how we talk to each other, how we carry information for each other, how we feel from when we're away from each other. Because that historical loss is kind of, um, I think it's embedded into your DNA. You know, the idea that uh, you could be left, that you might, might be left, that you might, um, you might become displaced from everyone that you know and love. And... I think as a country, we're really, we're you know we're really just beginning to examine all of that. I mean, where I come from in Northwest Donegal, there there was quite a um, tradition of uh, children who have been born through the mother baby homes being fostered out or boarded out to help families, um, you know, with farm or with the land. As a labour force, as, exactly, yeah. So, like, I, I can see those, um, I can see those men now who are fostered out and boarded out as young boys and as older men in the community, and I think that the impact has been huge, you know, of that history on on our lives today and on and it's intergen. These things are intergenerational as well. You know, we carry forward. Our sense of belonging from one generation into another and we a writer in the family is a bloody inconvenience it's a real I feel for my family I really do I think having a writer in the family is like you know having some kind of ticking time bomb they might you know they they might say nothing for a long time and then they're going to publish a book you know it's <laughs> and yet it's essential that somebody takes up the gauntlet and says, I'm going to break the silence. I'm going to say the thing that we're afraid to say. I'm going to talk about the thing that we'd all prefer not. You know, that I think there's value in that. I don't apologize for that uh, because I think it's very hard to write a book um, out of anything other than love and respect. I don't know if that's true of all literary genres, but all of my poetry and all of the poetry I admire, it comes, uh, it comes out of a naturally compassionate and open and um, transformative place. You know, I'd I, I struggle to think of a, a poetry book that was written to kind of piss someone off or revenge or hurt or... Like, poetry is a naturally very careful, thoughtful, mindful um, type of writing. And what goes into a poem is often a lifetime of feeling. I remember the first time I read Paul Durkin's Berlin Wall Cafe, which is essentially the, the anatomy of the dissolution of his marriage. And I must have been about 19 or 20, and I was kind of uh, agog, aghast, and, and utterly blown away by his honesty. Mm. Or, or the sort of forensic scrutiny of the dissolution of a, of a relationship. Mm -hmm. I never thought at that age of the consequences or, or the right to reply or the, the mm. right to reply that 
can never be expressed or isn't expressed. Um, do have your family commented on your work? Do you, have they discussed it? My family have never been to reading. Um, I think it'd be very. I think it'd be very difficult um, as it is to face any family member who uh, knows where you come from, knows your whole story, and um, to face their version of your truth. <laughs> um, that said, I think I was really raised as a child to, to, you know, to be vocal. I'm quite naturally introverted person I think and uh, you know quite formal and I um, I think you know we raise the children and we raise you know the the people that we want in our families and uh, like I have a sister who's a singer um, all my brothers are you know involved in kind of making and crafting and I certainly feel like I was allowed to become a writer and um, were there books in the house growing up no there weren't books it wasn't a um, we were a rural um, family who lived in you know we spoke Irish at home and so there wasn't really any dearth of Irish language books <laughs> there wasn't a local library for a long time it wasn't uh, I was the first person to go to college so it wasn't a literary arty household by a long stretch um but that said my my parents being in the situation in which they were which was they had a large family and they were unskilled and had not had the opportunity to go to um third level education i think they were very good at making something out of almost nothing and so you know, my, my father sold turf, um, he, he, he went out on the trawlers fishing, my mother knit iron jumpers uh, and sold them. They sold produce, they sold, you know, they had 300 chickens. They, you know, they went through all the kind of um, difficulties that a, a family in the 80s with a large uh, uh, number of children and not much means to... Um, support them they went they tried everything you know and so I always grew up with this example that your work ethic could carry you through and that you can make something out of nothing and that you work with what you have you work with what you have and I think that I've that's true of even my writing practice today I never throw anything away I never take for granted any opportunity I believe that you deal with what's in front of you and that you make the most of that. So all of those things were incredibly useful when I was learning to become a writer. Did, did they think you were trapped on their doorstep in an alien pod? Are you um, the black sheep bohemian who sort of went to the I city? probably am the black sheep, yeah. yeah. You'd, I mean, it's very hard to know what other people think of you or make of you. Um, I think I was, I was probably one of one of those women who um, was maybe s silent for a long time and uh, like I think Irish women can be a bit like that we've got incredible um, resilience and um, inner strength and and that can be maybe not seen or visible on the outside for quite a long time and then I imagine my parents turned around at some point and thought oh my god we've raised this kind of <laughs> machine who is um determined now you know to go on this writing journey and it sounds very kind of southern gothic <laughs> flannery o'connor you know carson mccullers sort of yeah you know here's the keeper of the stories yeah. <laughs> yeah. i love flannery o'connor yeah. she's a badass yeah um you've spoken about the boglands and donegal as, as almost a sort of aboriginal mystical place in which to grow up yeah it's very very strange growing up on the in the bog the bright black boglands i learned so much there about sound and silence and what might be buried in darkness and what can get sucked into darkness and what can be 
you know, the bog is constantly untwisting things back out of itself. So, like, you're all the time being swallowed and you're all the time being kind of regurgitated back. And um, that was a very, like, it, that particular bog land in northwest Donegal, it's steeped in mythology and folklore and Christian narratives, you know, uh, for better and for worse. I grew up in this landscape which was shaped and um, embedded with all these male narratives and uh, there was a richness to that and yet there was also you know the, the thinking began to form in me I, I want to, to reimagine this landscape I want to write this Donegal landscape but I want to write it you know through through the female story mm -hmm. I want to kind of reclaim it a bit and it's something I'm thinking more and more about reclaiming the landscape and showing it in a different light and uh, like you know I grew up around um, the hill that I grew up in it was uh, associated with Column Kill um, and then there were stories of the Fomorians who are these you know sea creatures uh, kind of one-eyed sea, sea creatures um, and all of the kings were male and like I'd struggle to have thought of any part of the landscape which was really associated with a female story and so all of that was really important um, to look at I think when I started to write. Do you have a, a poem that you'd like to read along those yeah, themes? Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I might read a poem that was uh, written for my foster sisters. Um, fosterage is something that I'm thinking about a lot because it was part of my own life, but it's also a really old part of Gaelic culture. Um, and under Brehan law was um, kind of a really important way of understanding how uh, society was organised. And um, so this in this poem, I've, I've drawn from my own life experiences, but I have uh, given each sister the name of a powerful female figure from Ireland's mythological or historical past. Sisters, let it be said, I cut a nick in my own skin and by a spit became blooded to them all. Maeve swaddled in clean cloth like a gem, as her mother, aged 16, leaned against the kitchen counter and watched me hold. Breege and Marie, found in a trailer by the river, speaking in a twisted song. Emer, who was always going home. Neve, who I was wild for and who was wild for me, but who held me under in the pool until both of us were dragged out of the water sobbing. Dara, who pulled her shirt up to reveal a string of roses on her ribs. Here are the gifts of my father, she said. Grace, who could fix any error with a piece of purple gum. Sarah, pure as water, bold as fire. I can still see her tear across the hill on that guy's motorbike, high-headed and ready for battle. Tailed women, denim stealers, alley girls in white musk with nine lives. These were my sisters. We argued over top bunks. We bled on sheets. We were four in a room the winter the house was falling down. We wrote letters to the man on the radio. We scanned the news for names of the dead. We curled letters inside bottles and threw them out to sea. We snapped wishbones, swore on graves, buried our treasure. We swung the gold of our mothers over our palms three times and asked the air, will I be loved, yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? I love the, that that is so steeped in, in your own mythology, the Irish mythology, but the, the litany effect is almost sort of like beat generation. It's mm -hmm. almost got that sort of footnote to hell, mm -hmm. uh, scriptural 
uh, you know, botanical thing going on. You were surprised to see you spent quite a while in Jack Kerouac's house in Florida. Mm, that do you, was. Do you believe houses have have uh, a residue of people who lived in them? Absolutely. I think that. I think that the landscape is. The landscape carries um, often stories that keep coming back to us because they need to be made sense of. And so houses carry stories, sites, ruins, monuments, place names as well can also be a signpost into how the physical environment carries the unsaid things um, that keep niggling at us. and. Um, yeah, how, how amazing to spend time in Kerouac's house in his armchair and um, to kind of, you know, look out over the same street that he looked out over. And yet I was keenly aware that, you know, it's Kerouac's house, but really it's Gabriella's house, his mother, mm, yeah. <laughs> who paid the bills and um, cleaned up after he, you know, had a party and took him in and held the space together. You know, it was... It was her house, and so much she she put it, you know she really kind of created that space and made it possible for him to be the writer that he was whilst there. Um, so you know it became the kind of running joke that uh, I would say, well, it's not Jack's house; it's his ma's house. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting thing because you know all the beats. Uh, Burroughs, Kerouac, and later on Bukowski whose work, I think, some of which you like, has that 1950s machismo male energy, mm. you know, very much mm -hmm. the women in the stories of the B generation are quote-unquote housewives or mm -hmm. girlfriends who've been left behind or the sort of uh, domestic forces who are forever, you know, tethering the unbridled sort of energy of the artist. Mm -hmm. And it's quite... That's an interesting... Well, way of, of, of getting in there is through Jack's mother. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we go back and we go back and we go back to what we need to understand. I mean, I come from a family where, you know, my grandmother was silenced. She was sent off for several months to deal with the situation of being pregnant and told not to come home until she had resolved that situation. And... A lot of the, the children that I grew up with as well, you know, they were erased out of their families because there were problems there. I mean, I don't know why we have the system where, where we remove children a lot of the time instead of removing problems from families. And so I suppose it's, you know, going towards the beats and Kerouac is again going towards a landscape where, you know, women were not being heard or were being pushed slightly to the fringes and trying to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think I'll be making sense of all during my life, really. You know, what, what happens when we, when we silence women and we don't listen to their stories and experiences? What age were you when you first spoke English? Irish was my first language up until about three. And then I went to school so uh, I suppose I had a more exposure then to uh, people speaking English and so I, I suppose around four I really started speaking English. Which would you consider, do you still consider Irish your, your native tongue, your first language? Uh, I consider Irish the heart language and it's one with which I have a complicated relationship I think because I don't haven't always felt comfortable writing in Irish um, and that's for a variety of reasons one being I never had the opportunity to read widely in Irish during my formative years um, also it's a new level of intimacy I think with the subject um, think of Irish as the heart language you know and there's a lot it comes with a lot of history. It's the, the language that I first spoke with the people that I was closest to in my family. And it was one that was interrupted, really ultimately interrupted by the state. Because when 
we started to foster children, we started then having to speak more and more English to accommodate more and more um, people in the home. So, like, there was some kind of trauma there, I think, with uh, English coming into the home through social worker reports and counsellors and authorities and guards and people arriving in the middle of the night. And, you know, I have a very emotional relationship with... Uh, with, with language and with Irish and feeling that I lost my grip of the Irish language under the influence of the state a little bit, you know, and it's really now in my 30s that I'm looking at that and, and thinking I'm, I, I'm just going to start writing, you know, I'm writing bilingual poems now, I'm using more Irish, I'm um, coming back into my Irish language history. Just like being colonized all over again, except by the state. It, it's very, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's very, like, it, I feel like I, I lost a bit of my confidence to use my own heart language, which seems very shocking, you know, but that is what, that's what happened. That's what happens. I mean, I was listening to an interview recently with um, Moya Brennan from Clannad, and she was saying that when they first began, in their hometown, which is very close to where I grew up, uh, singing their songs in Irish, uh, people didn't necessarily approve. You know, they thought they thought it was a bit ridiculous, kind of putting your heart language on show. <laughs> um, also, Irish is, you know, where I come from, it's it has been the language of of hardship and of poverty and of struggle and of sorrow, and so even for me, there seemed something. Like it was a big step. It's a big step. It's a big step now to put the Irish language down on the page and to you know put that out there, that part of myself, that part of hardship and struggle and survival, out there. So sometimes people come to the Gaeltacht and Donegal, and I, I think they don't always have positive experiences trying to speak Irish and wondering why people don't speak Irish back. Mm -hmm. But where I come from, Irish is the language of a small, tight-knit community which has gone through very hard times. And so to be, you know, singing your songs or writing your poems in it is almost um, showing a part of yourself that uh, seems private. It sounds almost like the relationship African-Americans would have with blues. Right. Um, that it's a... Yes, it's an indigenous language, but it's associated with great hardship and deprivation. Yeah. Uh, so it makes people uncomfortable, certain until there's enough distance put between mm -hmm. it, and you can appreciate mm -hmm. it. Do you? Do, I always wondered this. If at, the, at a time when you were speaking both languages, do you do you dream? Do you have a sense of dreaming in mm -hmm. in different languages? Mm -hmm. Is there is a dream different if it's in Irish than it is in English? Listen, you're, you're completely. I I really believe we're completely different people in different languages. You know, I'm in the English language. You know, my interface with the world tends to be somebody who's a um, little bit kind of uh, maybe introverted and uh, and a little bit kind of formal and formal on the page. And in Irish, I have a totally different sense of humour. I have a totally different way of um, building relationships with people. Like we're. It's a different lens completely. We're different people in, in different languages. I really believe that. Um, Irish language has a particular way of being body without being crude. Mm, very much so. It's like a... I mean, sarcasm doesn't quite uh, cover it, but there's a sense of humour in the Irish language where you can get away with a lot in Irish that you would never... I would say things in Irish that would never dream of saying in English because they would just seem crass or uncouth. But in the Irish language... Test us. <laughs> I won't. Um, yeah, you're a bit freer when speaking Irish. So you were a teenager when, in the 90s? 90s, yeah. yeah. What's your memory of writing something or having any kind of breakthrough in terms of language? Are there dead novels under the bed? Was it always poetry? What was, you know, do you have a memory of actually so getting it thrilled? I think for me it will always be poetry. I do other things, 
Um, I, I teach in a variety of settings. I, I'm writing an opera libretto. I'm interested in memoir. But essentially, as a poet, you're, you're an obsessive person. You're somebody who loves tinkering, dismantling. It's like somebody taking apart a radio and putting it back together again. You want to take everything apart and see how it works and put it back together again. And um, I suppose I just always had that sensitivity. I wanted to always dig into something and see, well, how far down can I go with this digging and what's at the root or the source? And for me, that marks poets out as being a little bit different to other types of, of writers. And I suppose that sensitivity was always there. But a kind of magic thing happened in the 90s. Um, two poets, uh, James Simmons and his wife, Janice Fitzpatrick Simmons, who ran the Poets House in Belfast, um, which was a very esteemed uh, school. And it was affiliated, it, I think it ran an MA, an affiliation with, anyway, a university in the UK. But they had to pack up out of Northern Ireland in the 90s and here they arrived down to the foot of Errigal in the Donegal Gaelpath and writers travelled from all over the world uh, to attend the Poets House. It was a very attractive venue for all the you know, literary greats because who doesn't want to go to the Donegal Gaelpath at the end of, you know, it was really appealing and hear the language being spoken and be beside the coast and so I was 14 or 15 and I met Jimmy Simmons and he said, hey, come up to the Poets House for a workshop and had my first workshop with Leyland Bardwell and it just was a complete game changer as a teenager because here was a woman sitting in front of me who, she, she had, you know, not only did she have a voice unlike any other voice I'd heard and she was listening and she was talking about the craft of writing, but she also was the leading a kind of life that I had not been around before in rural northwest Donegal, where people were very assigned into their gender roles, you know, to, to some degree. Uh, so I had that workshop with Leyland Bardwell, and I just thought that this is, this is the life I want, which is a life of writing and interrogation and poking at things and taking them apart and putting them back together. I remember Mike McCormick once described a bunch of stories that he was working on uh, to me as a breaker's yard. I thought that was a wonderful <laughs> way of describing this breaker's yard of stories in various states of disrepair. Um, there's something in that. I remember reading a biography of Robert Lowell when he was about 24 and then later a biography of William Burroughs. And what struck me is like that they all had these lives that were almost like the lives you had to lead if you are going to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that struck me about it was there's a horrendous amount of pain involved. Mm. Yep. Is that something you're doomed? <laughs> is that something you're doomed to fulfill if you're a writer, Emery? I'm really interested in constellations within communities and constellations within a family and you know like we've all seen it, it it lands to one person to look after you know the parents it lands to one person to you know arrange the celebrations and sometimes it lands to one person to do the feeling as well and writers or artists can often end up in that situation where they're doing a lot of feeling <laughs> and um yeah, that, that means that uh, like there's a lot of joy in writing a book and there's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of painful feelings as well, I think. Is there a lot of neurosis involved? Yeah. I don't know, I need to think about that, you know, because poetry is a, is a trade and it's a craft and I'm not quite sure I buy into the suffering artist myth because... Going back to what I said earlier on, I, I believe in the enterprise of work and labour and that ethic will can carry a book or a voice or a writer a long way. That's not so, to discount that there are neurotic mechanics or farmers or you know, horse breeders. Yes, I su yes. Uh, I suppose there is. I mean it's you know, you're you're like you're constantly when when I had finished writing Bloodroot I felt like a skin had been taken off and that I was really kind of raw <laughs> and um, 
so who does that <laughs> I mean um is it advisable like somebody said to me recently is poetry healing <laughs> I just thought um it's not it's not always very good at healing like sometimes you're you're really your job is to peel off a skin in public and, and in public and to go to that neurotic place and be yeah be that person I suppose the flip side of that is you do a lot of work teaching in prisons yes yeah so assuming that helps how does it help uh, are these is it uh, men's women's uh, men's prisons women's prisons both actually okay. I've done both yeah yeah I, I, I probably out of all of the teaching that I do um, teaching in prisons is um, the, the work that is 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 probably most nourishing um, in that uh, you, you go into a, a prison and, and you're faced you're faced in a bare um, way with people who are being held there but also with yourself you know so you're you see sometimes you see the worst and also the best of humanity you see everything in its full glory when you go into a prison when I'm teaching in prison it feels like Everything that would or you would ordinarily feel in a workshop um, is ma is magnified. Um, so when you really connect with someone in a prison setting, it can be life changing. And mm -hmm. uh, and when somebody is pushing you away in a workshop or not listening or doesn't want to listen or you know turning away from the work, that that can be really extreme. So that's a lot of responsibility, either is. But I think as as. As a poet, you always have responsibility, you know, you, well, once you put words on a page, and especially if you're writing history, you really have to, I'm always thinking about uh, poetry and responsibility, and how do I write from a mindful place, and how do I make poems that are going to have some transformative quality, and, you know, you mentioned consequence there, there's always a consequence, you know, to using using your voice and especially speaking about the things that I speak of. And so the prison work is just an extension of that. You know, you're, you're, you really have to face into it um, with the full awareness that prisoners, students who are coming to your workshop, they might be, you know, waiting all day, all week, all month to come to this workshop and to say something that they have been carrying for a very long time. And you have to be ready that... Uh, you're going to give them the opportunity, you're going to show them how they can work with personal material and how they can craft a poem, and that you're also going, by the time you leave, something transformative has happened, and that it's also that you're being safe and that you're being responsible. And I just see that as an extension of writing about, you know, Anne Lovett's story or, or Joanne Hayes. It's all part of the same, um, it's all part of the same work. Were you apprehensive before entering that environment for the first time? Definitely. I mean, who wouldn't be apprehensive about stepping into, stepping into a, a building and going through all the security checks? And once those bar doors close and, um, and you're going to be met with people and they don't know you and you don't know them and, and you're all in this very intense setting. Um, but once, I've always found that once you get into the the writing of poems and uh, the craft of it, all of that falls away. I've, I've never felt un, unsafe in a prison, actually. What I have felt is harrowed by um, the grief and the sorrow, and then also so um, just so moved by the human spirit and by the hope that we will have even in the most adverse circumstances you know to get yourself out of bed in a cold prison in the depths of winter and carrying all your loss and everything else you might be feeling and to get yourself down to a table and to start maybe with minimal literacy skills trying to write it's i mean you really see the human spirit in its full glory and it sometimes you know, you go back out into the ordinary world and you think, like, we're not, we're not really listening to each other and we're not seeing each other because you've had such an intense experience with a student who is 
maybe writing for the first time, naming something to themselves for the first time, um, listening to somebody else beside them and their story and connecting for the first time. Like, it's an honour to bear witness to that kind of writing. Has prison flattened out these people, made them into a kind of person, or is it as disparate as, as it is out here? I think it's, in many ways, like any other setting, you, you, meet, you, you meet people from all walks of life. I suppose one of the things that I, I've learned is that, um, you know, a, a crime is, in somebody's life is, um, you know, it's, it's something that happens in the context of many different events, maybe, usually. I'm just kind of thinking out loud and that, uh, you know, we can't be, like, I, I, the question is there, like, sh should we be defined by the, the very, you know, awful things that we do? Or is it up to me to create a space where somebody can, for just for a moment, be aligned with the good and pure part of themselves, which is the creative part and the human spirit? Like, it's not difficult for me to empathise in a prison setting at all um, with anyone who comes to my table, because we're here to write a poem and we're here to work with whatever, again, it's go back to that thing, we'll work with what we have, we'll work with what's in front of us. Um, as harrowing, as sorrowful as that may be, or as off the wall, or as unclear in your mind, we're going to spend this hour and we're going to make something that is transformative. And um, it's a very rich process. I spoke to a writer once who taught, he taught um, Iraq veterans in Michigan and when speaking to older teachers he said that the generation returning from Iraq were more damaged than the generation returning from Vietnam because the Vietnam generation had some tradition of verbalizing or writing what they'd seen and what they'd experienced, mm -hmm. no matter what their class or, or their background. But that a lot of the men, mostly coming back from Iraq, had been raised on uh, hip-hop and porn and video games. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, literally didn't have the language to describe or vocalize what mm -hmm. they'd experienced. And so the sense of trauma and blockage was so much greater. Um, that I'm wondering just about the role of language in, mm. in being able to mm -hmm. tap the wound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, that's something that I feel very passionate about is that we know things in the Irish language. You know, we know we have knowledge and we have wisdom and we have capacity, unique capacity for um, healing and for m moving past and beyond tra trauma. And when we lose the language, we lose a lot of those skills and capabilities, and they have to be learned over again in the English language. What's the best case scenario of teaching a prisoner? Ultimately, what I want to do is I want to I want the 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 student to realise that that they have a voice and that uh, that voice is where all poetry begins and comes from and that they too have the potential to use their voice to transform life experience into poems and to engage with the craft of writing. So, you know, there are two parts, I think, to, to creating a poem. There's the, the instinctual kind of flooding the page with your feeling or your memory or your emotion and then there's the second you know technical bit where you're shaping and tinkering and moving a thing into place and so I'm really trying to talk to a prisoner about all of that and to, to give them a moment where they can come to the table and I don't know what they've done I don't know want to know what they've done I want them to bring the you know the this pure part of themselves and to work with it which is what I try to do when I sit down mm. to write. 
you're operating in an interesting time, which is there for about 10 or 15 years. We have such a rich kind of poetic tradition in this country. Um, but somewhere between, I don't know, maybe 2000 and 2010, it was, there was this sense that either poetry wasn't being written by a certain generation, the stuff that was being written was somehow irrelevant or belonged to another world, another time. There wasn't a sense of vitality and regeneration going on. And then all of a sudden, in the last five or six years, there's, uh, there's you, there's Darren Negrifa, there's Dave Lord, and there's Jessica Trainer, there's Colin Keegan, all kinds mm -hmm. of both written and performance poets. Mm -hmm. What do you think? The, what do you think happened? What triggered it? Well, I th especially especially for for female Irish poets, there is almost a direct relationship between um, the new visibility of younger female Irish poets and what they're talking about and the shifting landscape in Ireland. You know, two recent. Um, big referendums. Um, there's new permission now, I think, to uh, as a female poet to step forward and to be heard and to talk about all of those things that historically we have pushed under the carpet. So, I think you can almost look at poetry before, kind of, you know, 2018 and after, and you can see a marked change in what happens when you. Um, I've just taken for you know one example of a change the repeal the eighth referendum and like poetry is well for me anyway it's it's a it's a visual experience it's an oral experience but it's a bodily one you know poetry I write a lot about the body I feel poetry in the body I'm thinking a lot about you know rhythm and silence and that as a bodily experience and to have this legislation now that says your body is your body to make decisions about. Of course that has an impact for, for writers. You know, of course that has an impact for poets. Poets in particular, you know, like our first rhythm that we hear is the mother's heartbeat, you know? So we're, 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 we're rhythmic creatures, we're poetic creatures. We love rhyme, we love, you know. And so there's been a, there's been such a change now where we're saying in Ireland that, you know, with both referendums, that your your body is yours now. We're giving it kind of back. And I think that is it. you suddenly see all these um, female poets and writers now becoming more, it's like a veil has been pulled back and um, you're seeing much more visibility. And, uh, and I feel really honoured to be part of that generation, but a very exciting time to be a female poet. Uh, in Ireland, absolutely. As though the times have demanded it. I think so, yeah. Anne-Marie, thanks very much for being a guest on Chris Murphy's podcast. Thank you. Thank you.